SequelCast 2 is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. Come on, let me hear you say it. Just one. Come on. Hard to say. No! <laughs> no, it was the other thing. Come on, I know it's just dangling off the tip of your tongue. Let me hear it. Just one. Please. Superman will Wrong! After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sounds are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. And your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show will now begin. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a podcast that looks at movies in a franchise one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shirky. With me is William Thrasher. And so, the podcast becomes the sequel. The sequel becomes the podcast. That's right, we're finishing our look at the uh, earlier Superman films with Superman Returns from 2006, directed by Brian Singer with a screenplay by Michael Doherty and Dan Harris. Uh, stars Brandon Routh, Kevin Spacey, Kate Bosworth, Frank Langella, and Parker Posey. Uh, this has music by John Ottman, also using themes by John Williams, cinematography, Newton Thomas Siegel, uh, edited by John Ottman and Elliot Graham, uh, off a uh, alleged, uh, off like a budget of, well, that's weird, of like $223 million. This made around $390 million worldwide, which was considered a uh, disappointment when you figure in marketing cost. <laughs> and uh, I'd like to talk box office here. So if we look at domestic gross, that that being the United States and Canada, guess which place uh, Superman Returns was in 2006? Oh, gosh, 13th? 6th. Oh, wow. I was going to so, say 7th, but then I changed my mind. You know, I'm comparing it to other sequels that came out that year. It did better than, like, Jackass Number 2, Saw 3, Santa Claus 3, Scary Movie 4, and Mission Impossible 3. Um, however, it did not do better than X-Men The Last Stand or uh, Pirates of the Caribbean Dead Man's Chest, which is the second one. So, it's just, um, yeah, I mean, it did, it did pretty well. It just wasn't huge, like, X-Men numbers. And um, But, I mean, to be fair, this there had not been a Superman movie on the big screen for, what, like 20 years or something, right? It had been quite some time. 1987, 19 years, so yeah. And, and you know, it wasn't for lack of trying. We've talked before um, about a, a lot of other things. Tim Burton had tried a, uh, to do a, a version of this based on Death and Return of Superman. Um, they were going to do a version that might have starred uh, Brendan Fraser as Superman. Oh, no, um, I hadn't heard of that one. Yeah, it was uh, going to have a script by J.J. Abrams, and uh, Mick G. was going to direct it. But then Mick G. confessed he was scared of flying, and they were going to film it in Australia. So, I don't, you know, for whatever reasons. And uh, with, with this movie, famously, director Brian Singer was all set up to do X-Men 3, and then he bolted and left to do Superman. So, um, and he took um, James Marsden with him. <laughs> which is part of the reason why James Marsden has a more limited role in that film. Um, so, yeah. So, when did you first uh, see this one? Was it in the theater? This morning. Oh, you hadn't seen it before. That's a, no. 
surprising. Well, when it, I was really interested in seeing it uh, when when I first heard about it, but it came out around the time I had moved from Savannah back to Virginia, and and money was tight. And the short version is a number of people whose opinions I trusted on superhero movies told me that I should just I should just pass, uh, and so I ended up not seeing it. Yeah, um, I saw this in the theater, and I wasn't going to originally, but um, I, I watched a making of special on TV, and I was really you know impressed at how Brandon Routh uh, looked like Superman and uh, Christopher Reeve and all that, and thought I'd give it a shot, and I um, found it kind of boring, and I still do, but we'll, we'll get into that. Um, I mean, loosely, the plot is once again, you know, Superman has been uh, has been missing, has has been gone from Earth uh, to try and find out um, what's left of Krypton, to try and explore if there's any other ones like him out there, and uh, in the meantime, Lois Lane wins a Pulitzer for an article, Why the World Doesn't Need a Superman, and uh, Superman comes back, and it turns out Lois Lane is uh, seeing a guy and has a kid, and it's not really specified who the kid's father is. And meanwhile, Lex Luthor is out of jail, and he once again is doing a land thing, but this time it's involving um, kryptonite pieces and other minerals to, to make the crystal formations. <laughs> I kind of love that they're going all in and making it another crooked land deal. Right. Um, I mean, this, this film clearly is a love letter to uh, the original Superman, the motion picture. Um, which we talked about a few weeks ago. You can find that, uh, just search Sequel to Cast 2 in your favorite, you know, on iTunes and the podcast app and uh, <coughs> wherever fine podcasts are found. But, yeah, it it is so in love with the Richard Donner Superman film that um, it's almost too reverential. I think that holds it back a bit. But, yeah, once again, Lex Luthor is a bad guy. <coughs> once again, you have a land grab as the plot. Uh, once again, you have... Um, Instead of Miss Tessmacher, you have a very similar sort of character called Kitty Kowalski, played by Parker Posey. She was oh, such she's... a throwback, but I absolutely love Parker Posey's performance. She's one of the best things in this movie. Like, she doesn't... She camps it up just enough, but I... she's also, I don't think, like, as ditzy. But they even keep the thing where she has a crush on Superman, and uh, Tessmacher had that as well. I mean, well, Parker Posey's performance was perfectly poised. <laughs> Yes, yeah, it was, it was pretty good. Um, and yeah, it, it's very interesting. They did, um, you know, uh, a Superman movie having an unknown in the lead, but that I think they, they sort of did that because Christopher Reeve um, was, was basically an unknown when he was cast. So... Yeah, that that works. Although it, it is, it's interesting watching this movie now that that Brandon Ralph has gone on to become a fixture in the uh, DC Comics uh, television shows that are on uh, that are on the CW. He plays uh, Doctor Palmer, who becomes the Atom, and he's he's been, I think he's been on all of those shows as this character. Yeah, he's kind of the George Lazenby of the Superman series, isn't he? He only had one movie. Um, unfortunately, and I, I think his, his performance is actually pretty good, especially as Clark Kent. I think he, he he gets the nervousness, and there's a lot of very subtle things going on that he does. Well, he captures um, he captures the same kind of vulnerability that, that Reeve had in the earlier films, but then beyond beyond that, there is just this there's this very I, I guess for lack of a better term, adorable goofiness to his performance as Clark Kent. 
And he doesn't overdo it either. Um, now, you know, you have Kate Bosworth as Lois Lane, who goes, and uh, I, I don't think she's tough enough. I don't know. Like, this is an interpretation of Lois where, I mean, it's she's supposed to be older, but because it's past the, the time of the, the first two films, but she looks a lot younger. The actress they cast, uh, Kate Bosworth, is pretty young. And I don't think she quite did it for me. Um, I thought something a little bit was missing. What did you think? Well, looking looking at this movie, I think I think the the problem is, I think what this movie wants to be is a Lois Lane movie. Mm, there is so so much focus is given to Lois and her role as a reporter and also a mother and also just a a, a real go getter. There there are many mo- and and even then she has the climax of this movie. The climax of this movie is her saving Superman's life. I really. F- this feels like a movie that was originally the story of Lois Lane, but then a producer demanded that there be more Superman in it. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. And, you know, it's a different, it's a softer approach to Lois, but I do like that you do see the Daily Planet up front and center in this movie a good bit, um, which is not something you really see in Man of Steel. Uh, I really like Kevin Spacey as Lex Luthor. I think he's better than Gene Hackman. I think he he is uh, is funny, but there's a, there's a great scene that became kind of a meme where he yells "Ron" at one point. Oh and, yeah, uh, that that scene is fantastic. Now I know there's something you want to say. <laughs> it's like you're insane, Luthor. That's very good, but that's not the thing I'm thinking of. Come on, you know what that thing is. <laughs> Like that, yeah, he he smarms it up wonderfully. He he is he is a fantastic Luthor, uh, and there is there's a part of me that would love to see him play Luthor again, and there's also that other part of me that never wants to see him on screen again. Yeah. Um, also, with Kevin Spacey, uh, they carry the thing from the original film of Luthor having different wigs. There's a, especially when he he gets into a museum to steal some uh, a particular um, meteorite piece. He has this ridiculous long wig that just looks dumb, and and a fake southern accent. <laughs> yeah, we'll sir. Just, the, like, the museum closes in ten closes. minutes. Yeah. We only need five. Yeah, it's um, it, it's quite interesting. I, I realize that they I, choose to do that. I realize we're jumping around a bit, but that is one scene that did not work for me at all because it seemed it seemed like such a parody scene when Lois is sneaking around Luthor's yacht and she doesn't know it's Luthor's yacht but she goes into this room and sees all these wigs and suddenly it's like both she and we are supposed to be terrified that she's found all these wigs yeah um because clearly only Lex Luthor would have this many wigs that's right we're just kind of talking in general about the cast here then we'll we'll jump back um talk about the film proper Frank Langella as Perry White is okay. It, you know, he doesn't... He seems a bit beleaguered, but he's not... Um, and he, he doesn't strike me as pissy as uh, the one we got in uh, the other films. Well, he doesn't have the same sort of snappy rat-a-tat-tat that uh, He seems sort of Perry tired, has. yeah. Um, but it, what's interesting is originally they wanted Hugh Laurie for that part, and I wonder what he would have done with it. Wow. Um, and that would have been pretty cool, I think. Uh, Sam Huntington, I think, makes a pretty good Jimmy Olsen. He has oh, that kind of go get him, he's goofy awesome. attitude. Yeah, it's pretty on point, I think. And uh, I love his reaction early on. There's a scene, Clark Kent, he, he sees a, a photo, a framed photograph on Lois's desk of Lois and her kid. And uh, 
he he grabs it so hard that he smashes like he cracks the glass, and then Jimmy Olsen's like, oh well, you know the uh, the frame wasn't very good anyway. We can just replace it. Like he's just always on the bright side of life. Pretty good. Um, well, even even his character introduction when he's just so happy to see Clark Kent back, and then he shows up with the cake that says "Welcome back, Clark," but there's already a piece missing. <laughs> Which would right. seem to imply that he bakes one of those cakes every week just in case Clark comes back to work. Oh yeah, is it a five-year-old cake that's like moldy? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, also, there is other things in here with... Uh, oddly enough, you get Cal Penn, you know, perhaps best known from the Harold and Kumar movies as Luther's assistant. But he has like no dialogue, really. Well, yeah, he's always doing something, but he barely has... Like, I feel like he only has three lines, and most of those lines are okay and yes. Mm-hmm. Which, which is a real shame, because he... Like, I, I get so excited every time I, I see him on screen, because I do love him in things. And it, he, is, he is tragically underserved. I would love to see Luthor playing off of a competent henchman. But we don't get that. No, um, but I think it's great they cast an Indian actor in the part. Um, so yeah, let's talk about the, the movie plot proper. We've kind of compared the characters to what was in the other films. And, well, we open um, we open with an expositional text crawl uh, explaining that astronomers believe they found the location of Krypton, and so Superman vanished to check that part of space out, and that the world the world has moved on. What's really strange is on. Um, certain versions of the film I, I think one of the blu-rays in, or in the box set or something has a deleted scene that cost a lot of money that shows superman in a fancy spaceship flying out to krypton and seeing that nothing is there Man. they actually filmed it where you could see it and that it's not in the film i think is a big weakness because this movie assumes you know who superman is but you don't really see him until he gets back to earth and it's a uh, Pretty long and drawn out until you see Superman in the suit. And having more context as to what he was doing, I think, would have been helpful. Yeah, in many, in many ways, I feel like... Because <laughs> I, 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 that, that kind of scene, you could dispense with, with that exposition. And just when Superman shows back up again, we can then learn how long he's been absent. It would give the audience a chance to discover something. But inst- instead, we don't get it. Yeah, and uh, we get quite a lot in the beginning with uh, Lex Luthor, which I think is sort of which really surprised me when I first saw this movie. Well, well yeah, like he, well, he's really the first the first person we see. We get this old this old woman on life support in a mansion with the two corgis, and she's talking with this unseen uh, lover, presumably. And as she's dying, she's signing her will to leave her vast fortune over to this mystery gentleman. But she dies before signing her last name, so he grabs the hand of her corpse and writes the rest of her signature. And that old woman is Noel Neal, who was Lois Lane in the TV series. That's right. Which is pretty neat. And you wouldn't know that, really, unless you... Uh, but they have some other thing, you know, some other nods with the stunt casting, which is a fun thing. Or rather nice. But then, you know, the doors to the bedroom open, and you know, you see her whole rich family there, and the lover comes out, takes off his wig, we see that it's Lex Luthor, and he says, uh, he hands the wig to a child, says, you can keep that, the rest of all this is mine. Get out. And she looks at the wig and screams. It's very <laughs> over the top. It's it's really quite nice, and I I do sort of 
it's it's kind of interesting because it, it it allows them to sort of have two versions of Luthor simultaneously. The the classic Luthor where he's a super genius crook and the modern Luthor where he's the world's richest man. And so they achieve that by having Luthor con an old woman out of a fortune. Yeah, a part of me would have liked to have seen a prison break, but I don't know. I guess they already did that in the second Superman well, movie. Well, that's something that, do, that does bother me, is the whole explanation of why Luthor is is out on the street. is because he didn't do a prison break. He got, like, acquitted. There, yeah. there was, like, some sort of parole hearing, and Superman was supposed to testify. And since Superman <laughs> did it, didn't, they let Luthor go. And this is I a mean, man who the state... Been... Yeah. Was 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 convicted and was given two consecutive life sentences, and and as, if we are to assume that this takes place in the same continuity of the earlier films, which it seems to, this is after Luthor has stolen two nuclear missiles and committed high treason against the United States. I mean, that would have been a fun scene, wouldn't it, to see the uh, the court scene, the courtroom scene? You know, to an Superman extent. Not- testifying and then luther could have a a good monologue yeah i could go i could go for that like it it feels totally unearned this notion that he that that luthor can just get acquitted if superman doesn't show up for a hearing right it's um one of those things unfortunately um so you you have that going on, and then you know uh, this this pretty dramatic scene at the Kent uh, farm, where it it's it, it very much mirrors you know uh, Superman arriving as a baby, but instead you see like all these flames in his pod, and he's you know in this weird Superman's you know grown up, and he's in this weird suit, and Ma Kent runs out to him, and he just he explains you know what he was doing. It's very sort of exposition heavy yeah which which again i feel like we don't necessarily need uh need the uh exposition but i but it is it is nice to see superman playing off one of his parents again right they don't have both of them dead in this film um and we have I love oh can I say I yeah. love that bit where like he's he's playing with the family dog and he throws the baseball too far and the dog doesn't want to go after it yeah, that, that's neat. Um, it's interesting at this point, too, they do uh, a bit of a flashback to when he was a teenager running around with his powers. And I'm not sure why. Um, I, th- I feel there, there's a, a part of me that, that really does believe that they really, really wanted to do Superman's origin story over again. Hmm. But since they were going to try to do a continuation, I mean, they spend so much time on moments like that, they might as well have done the origin story again. Right. Like I think it's a fun, it's a fun, cool scene, but it does serve no narrative purpose if you're not going to do the origin. Right, and considering this was you know nearly twenty years after the last Superman film, they would have been perfectly fine having an origin in here, even if it wasn't the focus of the whole movie. Because um, I think some people probably went to this movie not knowing who Superman was or not that much about the character. Yeah, but we do. So you know, we get we get a lot of reintroductions. You know, Clark goes back to work the Daily at, the Daily, Planet. at the Daily yeah. Planet. Um, we get Luthor uh, assembling uh, assembling his his gang of criminals, and I, I, I did love that. You know that that bit where he's going back and forth uh, with Kitty Kowalski, 
and you know, like you know, the the greatest criminal mind in the world is isn't worth a pack of cigarettes in a or a sharp metal object in a prison. You know, I had I had to make I had to make friends in low places. Right. You know, I I, so I love his I love his little mob that 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 he gathers around himself. And uh, inevitably, they they get on they get on the yacht that Luthor has inherited and go sailing north because he finally has decided to take advantage of the fact that he knows where the Fortress of Solitude is. Yeah, and it looks much like it does in the original film. And they use CG to do a likeness of Marlon Brando and use outtake lines from... I think they were meant for Superman 2, actually. Um, so it is Brando's voice, but it's a CG version of him. But I think the Are way you they sure use... a CG Brando? Because, like, the... It, it you can see film grain on the Brando hologram. I feel like they're just superimposing at Brando footage that existed. It could have been both. I'm not sure, but I I, I like how it's diffused through the crystals and you know it, it kind of hides whatever imperfections there might be. Um, but it's a, regardless of how it was done, you know I think it's well done. It's a good effect. And presumably, uh, film footage Brando uh, was cheaper than regular Brando, even though Brando was dead at the time. I think Brando probably being dead probably made it easier for them to to do this. (laughs) And I'm not sure if he would have let them do it to begin with. Or not for a lot more money. Because you can't negotiate when you're dead. Um, Oh, but we do get uh, we do get uh, to see we do get to see a really nice rescue sequence. Um, uh, so there is this company that's unveiling this modified space shuttle that's going to be used as an intercontinental uh, intercontinental uh, transport. It's going to be a new form of luxury transportation anywhere in the world. And they found a way to cheaply launch the shuttle by piggybacking it off of a Boeing seven forty seven to bring it into a high altitude. And so Lois. Had, Lois is on the the inaugural flight, and it's it's a really nice setup. You know from the moment you see the shuttle that something's going to go wrong. And one thing that that does come up here though is that Lois does point out like if this is if this is such an important you know a, a moment for for science and, and industry, why am I the only reporter covering this launch? And I that sounds like something that's going to come up later, but it doesn't. No, but, I mean, the, the sequence has uh, a lot of suspense as the, uh, you know, the space shuttle is set up to take off, but then the heat from the rockets is melting things on the plane, and the plane's spinning around, and people are getting tossed around everywhere. Well, even then, the whole, you know, the whole problem with the rocket is that Luthor steals a bunch of Kryptonian crystals brings and destroys an awesome train set in a basement experimenting with them, and the whole power outage that causes the malfunction on the shuttle is a side effect of his experiments, which, which is something I like. I like that Luthor is responsible for this accident, even if he is not aware of it. Yeah, and that scene is, you know, pretty extravagant where Luther's down there, he has a big model of a city, and they drop a little piece of the, the kryptonite in there, and it, it, it bubbles up and causes the power in the, the town and everywhere to kind of go down. But as, as it starts bubbling, I, I like how Kevin Spacey starts walking backwards because he knows something is going to happen. 
Yeah, I'm almost surprised a giant crystal shard doesn't just fire out and impale one of his henchmen, but it doesn't. Yeah, that would have been something more dramatic than bubbling water and the lights going out. Well, so so uh, something about uh, about uh, Superman's rescue of the the shuttle and Lois Lane and whatnot. Um, so one of the things we see is that he uses his heat vision. They've changed up the special effect for Superman's heat vision, where instead of like the classic red lasers coming out of its eyes, it's sort of these like bubbly energy waves that distort the air. I wanted to know what you thought about that redesign of the effect. I I liked it. I think it it works. You get a good sense of uh of movement. Um I I really like the what it looks when he he saves the the plane and he goes beneath it and kind of holds it up in a sort of a strong man pose. I I think that was probably my favorite part of that sequence. Yeah, I just say I don't like the redesign of the heat vision. No. Well, one, it's it's one of those things where if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Like we already know what his heat vision looks like. There's no need to redesign it. But then beyond that, the effect they've chosen makes it look. And I this I know this probably sounds nonsensical, but that's the effect you use for a sonic power, not for a light power. Because mm. it looks like sound waves are distorting the air. Like, it, it reads as a sonic power for whatever reason. Yeah. But I will say, the, like, the, the climax of, of that, because he gets the shuttle into space, and, you know, the, the, the wings of the plane rip off, him just, ca- like, carrying the plane down and laying it in the middle of a baseball diamond, and then when he lays it, then, like, there's that, that pause, and then everyone in the stadium stands up and cheers that Superman has saved this plane. Yeah. It, it is it is somewhat masturbatory and self-congratulatory on the filmmaker's part, but I really do like that moment. And it's the only action we're going to see in the film for quite a while. That, that is also true, because we don't, we, don't, we don't get, like in the first film, him just flying around and doing lots of good deeds. We kind of get this, and then a lot of Clark Kent for the next hour. Yeah, I mean, we, there is a scene thrown in there where... Um, a bad guy is on a crane with a chain gun shooting at stuff and and Superman goes on the roof and it's in slow motion and the bullets bounce off him and then the guy jumps out, pulls the gun and fires it at Superman's eye or head and it yeah. bounces off his eyeball. Yeah, that was the shot that was in all the trailers was the bullet bouncing off of Superman's eye in slow-mo. But what's strange is after that you expect, okay, Superman's going to fight this guy and you don't, you don't see the payoff for that scene. Yeah, it's one it's one of those things where like you feel like, you know, after the guy realizes he can't hurt Superman, we should cut to the cops below and then Superman flies down with all of the crooks wrapped up in a girder and you know, he hands them the crooks, he hands them the bags of money to put back in the bank and then kind of, you know, sa- says something just congenial and flies away, but we yeah, we don't get we don't get a proper payoff. So something that I guess we, we really need to talk about. So there's a there's a new character that's introduced, uh, which is uh, Jason White, which is Lois yes. Lane's son, supposedly uh, with Richard White, the nephew of Perry White, who's a retired pilot who now is an editor of the paper. And they're not married. They have, as, as Jimmy says, a prolonged engagement. And this this is where I really start to get this kid is where I really start to get upset with this movie. I don't like the kid either because it it makes you think like okay so is 
I don't know. It just makes me think of a sort of trope in a cartoon. I mean, you're going to have Super Dog next. Are you going to? What's What's the point? There's a lot of business. You know, you already have a lot of characters in the film when you have a kid and you're trying to do this. I don't well, know, beyond, conflict. If, well, but then Richard is such a nice guy that like there isn't really much. Is it's not like he's an asshole or something. Yeah, and I th- I think for me because for me it's not the cousin Oliver aspect of having this new oh, kid yeah, character yeah. introduced. For me, it's it's what this says about about the character because I I feel they're they're not they're not making a statement because I feel like it would be a very powerful statement. If while Superman was absent, Lois Lane moved on, fell in love with another man, got married and had a kid, that would be a very powerful statement, which would distinguish this movie from other Superman movies. But by sort of not having them married, they 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 don't they don't go in that direction. Then beyond that, they're always teasingly hinting that the kid might, in fact, be Superman's. But then that upsets me even more because it is totally outside of Superman's moral character to to have a child out of wedlock. And even even if he got Lois Lane pregnant, that's when he or Clark Kent or perhaps both would propose to Lois. I I I really do not like the idea of Superman being this absentee father. It it really it's it seems like a betrayal of, of the character's kind of down home morality. Yeah, and I, I'm always bothered by a scene um, near the end where the the kid is under attack with, with Lois on Luther's yacht, and he basically makes a the kid m- makes the piano kill a henchman. Which, like, but e- oh. but even then, I feel like they're trying to continue being teasing because. They don't commit. Well, wait, because we don't we don't see the kid throw the piano. We just see the the piano come from out of frame and slam into the henchman. Um, and since this happens while they're on a yacht on choppy seas, I almost feel like they want us to have some doubt in our mind because well, maybe the ship just tipped a little and the piano slipped. Of course, we also see that everything in that part of the ship is bolted down, so it do- so it doesn't do that. And yet there's just there's too much there's too much going on with this kid and none of it is satisfying. Like like for instance the kid having asthma and supposedly all these food yeah. allergies, but then at the end of the movie he just stops having asthma and food allergies. To to the point where it's yeah. like, well did he ever? Was he being lied to? Were those placebos? Was there some Munchausen syndrome involved? And I think if you introduce that you think well maybe there'd be some dramatic scene where he has an asthma attack and they have to, but then it turns out you can overcome it. I don't know. It, yeah, it's they don't commit enough to Lois Lane having moved on from Superman, and there's um, you know you get a little bit of Richard White jealous of Superman and uh, and all that, but he is still like a nice guy. He's not like a jerk, so you don't feel like okay. He seems like a nice enough guy. Like so, Lois has another guy. That's fine. Like it makes it for less conflict between him and Clark. And like and like even 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 then, you know, I uh, I'm 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 old enough that I now know many many people who are raising kids who who aren't their own, whether it's through marriage or or right, you know someone right. had a child out of wedlock and then there was a marriage later, and I, there's there's a there's a part of me that I wish they would just establish that Lois had this child and then hooked up, uh, then then hooked up with Richard White. 
Because, like, I, I think – because Richard White seems like a decent enough guy that he would have no problem, you know, acting acting as the father to, to Lois's child because they have this long-term relationship. Right. It's it's it is it is such it is such a baffling choice. It gives the movie a lot of baggage. I think that it doesn't need. Um, yeah, I would have rather them beefed up Richard White and get rid of the kid or, or save the kid for another movie. I don't know. It's just or, it's or, just you know, not needed. Let the let the kid have his asthma, but then have like Lex Luthor take the inhaler and like you know threaten the kid. There, you, there you go. Yeah. Like threatening a child does not seem beyond what Lex Luthor would do. So nope. you've got a kid in the movie; you might as well take advantage of it. So yeah, and so you know, there's lots of stuff going on in the office about who's going to cover what story. And Lois Lane is trying to get to the bottom of the power outage because she seems to be the only person who cares that it covered like almost the whole hemisphere of the world. And I do at least like that we get to see her be clever and that, like, she talks to all these, like, power substations and gets the exact time that they lost power and uses that to sort of triangulate the epicenter of the blast or of, of whatever knocked out the power. And that leads her to the mansion where Luthor's staying. Oh, can we say one thing that I absolutely I loved with horror when Luthor and his gang come back from their exp- expedition in the north, they go into the house, and clearly no one's been living there or doing any upkeep for a while, and one of the corgis is there just chewing on a bone, and there was this part of me like, oh my god, what's that corgi eating? And then immediately Kitty says, hey, didn't there used to be two of those? Right. <laughs> that is they don't, so dark. It's dark. They don't linger on it. It's something you can blink and you miss it, but yeah, it's a good, it's a good little grim detail um oh you know something i did like because you know when when luthor and his gang go to the museum to steal the kryptonite uh, meteorite they need a distraction for superman and the distraction for superman is kitty kowalski pretends that her car is out of control and we get some awesome stunt driving in that scene it does not appear yes. to have been enhanced with cgi it looks like pract- all practical car effects which i when adore I- and I love how the car just sort of busts out of the museum initially. Like, it's a real shock when it happens, and it's it's very uh, chaotic. And the, the interplay between Kitty and Superman, I think, is really nice. Like, she, it, it is very much a callback to the first film with the thing between Tessmacher and Superman. Well, she, she really is, like, uh, acting like a flustered dame from, from an early uh, early comic book, like a real 1940s sort of thing. And, and one thing I also liked about that, when Superman catches the car and sets it down, it be, he, it, his profile, of the profile of him in the car becomes the iconic cover of Action Comics number one. Oh, which okay. which I thought was delightful. But yeah, I love that you know she talks about how she's having heart palpitations and that she needs Superman to fly her to the hospital. So he he does, although he does dither around for some reason. And I do like that later we do get that that confrontation where she's with Luthor. You, we, I was going to pretend my brakes were out. Pretend you cut my brakes. And he's like, no, no, darling. Uh, a man can always tell when a woman is faking. <laughs> God, it's just perfect, Luthor. It's it's one of those things. I I really do wonder why Kitty Kowalski sticks with Luthor for as long as she does. I really feel that character needs to do a turn like Miss Tessmacher did in the first film. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, uh, Luthor and Kowalski is two things the movie does very well. Um, 
it's just a shame, you know, the, the plot of this film I don't think is that good. And it, it, the movie's too long, it really drags. Um, I mean, cause in my opinion, the highlight is that sequence where he rescues the airplane and the space shuttle. Yeah, we don't we don't quite get an act of daring do that quite lives up to that. Uh, but we do get uh, we do get the execution of uh, of Luthor's plan. So you know they get back. So Lois, he's got Lois Lane and the kid trapped on the yacht. They go out into the middle of the ocean, and he takes one of the fires one of the Kryptonian crystals into the into the ocean, but in this shell made from processed kryptonite. And because his whole his whole evil scheme is you know he knows he's figured out that that the Kryptonians grew everything they needed from buildings to weapons to power sources from crystals. So he's figured out a way to activate a Kryptonian crystal to grow out of control, and he's going to make a new continent. But this new continent is going to grow so big and displace so much water that it's going to flood most of the United States and Europe. So everyone's going to need a new place to live, and he's going to have, well, like, you know, he said, like several trillion miles of new beachfront property. And that's what happens. The, the, the crystal starts to grow, and it starts to grow into this... One of the cooler designs in the film, it grows into this island, which really is like a dark reflection of Krypton. It has the same crystalline angles, but everything is like black and charred, and you can see the veins of kryptonite growing through it. Yeah, that's that's quite nice. I, I like the visuals. I also like, you know, Luthor stabs Clark with a a bit of the... Of the original tonight, meteorite. Of the original meteorite, and that's I think that's also sort of like a darker scene. Um, well, you know something I like about this the, this whole uh, Kryptonian island. It is a truly apocalyptic threat. It is going to irrevocably damage the world by its mere presence. But it doesn't involve a blue space laser or a portal or anything like this. This is an apocalypse we have n- never seen before and probably will never see again. Yeah, I, I like that it's doing like an alien landscape on Earth. You're not just trying to stop a few missiles again. But yeah, and it, so it, it is. It is really neat seeing Superman confront Luthor in a weird, like, dark copy of the Forces of Solitude. And I really like the confrontation because the uh, uh, Superman does not yet know that the whole f- place is laced with kryptonite, and he's talking to he's talking to Luthor. And then there's a single bead of sweat on Superman's brow. And that's when Luthor knows that Superman's powers have been leached away and he's able to beat the crap out of him. Yep. And it really, Superman really does get brutalized in these scenes. And you stab, stab with kryptonite, the shard broken off, and he's tossed into the ocean. And just, just, Luthor's just kind of cruel, sneering read of, now fly, right before Superman gets tossed. It really is nasty. And of course, well, that oh, and we do we do get some some Lois Lane ingenuity because the whole reason anyone finds out about this is that Lois Lane, while her kid's playing the piano with what would appear to be one of the Joker's former henchmen, um, there's a fax machine on the boat. She scribbles the boat's coordinates on a piece of paper with her signature and runs it through the fax machine to the Daily Planet. And so we get both Superman wanting to save her, but also uh, also Richard White wanting to save her, who has been established uh, is a pilot. Um, although this is, I, I feel so mixed about this because even before all this, 
uh, the the arrival of the Kryptonite Island causes an earthquake in Metropolis, and we do see Superman doing a lot of life-saving. But it almost seems tacked on. I, I really wish this scene of life-saving from the earthquake had happened earlier in the film. Yeah, it certainly could have used it. There's just so many things happen one right after the other in this third act. It would have been nice to have spread some of this action out. And you have Superman, you know, going back into the atmosphere to, to get the, the sun. Well, they, well, this the is after... Well, this is the true climax of the film because... Sure. Um, you know, because Superman did save Lois and the kid from the, from the yacht when it got impaled on a kryptonite spike and got them to Richard's plane and helped Richard's plane take off. Uh, but then when Superman falls into the water, they come back and Lois Lane rescues Superman. She's the one that dives into the stormy seas, swims down into the ocean and brings Superman to the surface and pulls the kryptonite shards out of his body. That's that's the climax of the movie for me. Yeah, nothing. Nothing has from that point forward. Nothing has the same high stakes as when Lois Lane is rescuing Superman. You're right. It's just sort of clean up after that. But yeah, so you know, Superman flies into the air, uh, re- gets a solar powered recharge, uh, is able to, uh, uh, and he, he yeah he lifts the whole island up and tosses it into space. Uh, Luthor uh, and uh, Luthor and uh, Kowalski escape on uh, Luthor's helicopter. Uh, Luthor has the crystals, but. Kitty purposefully dumps the crystals out of the helicopter, not wanting Luthor to do anything this nasty again. Um, so I guess that's as close to a turn as she gets. And even then, I could half believe the crystals get dumped by accident. Uh, and then they're just gone from the film. I will talk about the one scene they get later. But um, after you know, after tossing the planet, Superman falls to Earth, lands in uh, Metropolis's equivalent of Central Park. And in a scene I really liked, Superman gets brought to the hospital and you see paramedics struggling with trying to save Superman. Right. And it's like they can't give him injections of anything. We see all the needles bend on his skin. They're not sure with his alien biology what his heart rate's even supposed to be. They do pull one last kryptonite shard out of him. They try to shock his heart back on, and but that only destroys all the electrical equipment uh, in the scene. This scene is nice and big and tense. And I kind of wish it went straight from Lois Lane rescuing Superman to this. Because the, the, it feels like they, they should flow into each other. Right, and it, it's nice what he uh, he says to his son, and it's a nice sort of gentle ending, and it, it's all about the, the stakes of the character. Well, well, yeah, because Superman's in a coma for a while, but Lois Lane goes to visit him and whispers something to him, presumably whispering that the kid is Superman's son. Superman comes out of his coma, creepily visits his son to give like yes. a, a shortened version of the Jor-El speech, Runs into Lois Lane as he leaves, kind of says, I'll see you around, flies off. We kind of get a glory shot of him. But again, I find that so unsatisfying. Superman should want to be a father to his child. Um, and we do get a we do get a thing with Lex Luthor that really feels like it should have been a stinger, but it comes really awkwardly between Superman in the ER and Superman in the coma, where it's Luthor and Kowalski on a deserted island and they've got, and like Luthor throws a coconut into the ocean, and Kowalski's pointing out that they only have so many coconuts, and he gives this whole speech about everything he'd be willing to trade for a single gallon of gas for their helicopter, and they're trapped on the island. And like, well, what are we going to eat? And he like looks at the corgi, 
Yeah. And and it's that that feels like that feels like an end of credits stinger. That should have been at the end of the credits. It feels so out of place in the middle of this movie. Especially in, in between two traumatic scenes, you're right. And, and it also it continues to upset me. Maybe Superman should have grabbed Luthor and put him back in jail. Right. He did in the uh, Superman 4. Like, I just find it so unsatisfying. Like, he, you know an island's not going to keep Luthor trapped. I am so... I'm just so disappointed that Luthor's just on an island, and it's only a matter of time before he's going to do something horrible again. It's not the comeuppance that you want. Yeah. And, and yet, despite the fact that I've been saying nothing but negative things about this movie, I did like it. I did not. I'll have to give it a sequel no. It's just... Uh... It's there's too much fat on here. It's too slow. It I like the space shuttle sequence. I like the Daily Planet. I like uh, I like the bad guys in it, Kevin Spacey and uh, Parker Posey as Luther and Kowalski. But um, otherwise, it's just it's not enough. Is is at stake. The story doesn't have just meanders a lot. Um, there's not enough propulsion to the story. It should have been. You should have gone with something a bit uh, stronger. And I'm not sure what that would have been. I guess I guess for me it has everything I want in a Superman movie in it, uh, including uh, uh, including some reverence for the source material. Yes, it does have a lot of a lot of fat. It has a lot of missed opportunities. It has a lot of very bizarre storytelling choices, but not so much that I consider this movie a waste of time. Like this, this was it wasn't quite dessert, but I I am fine with this cycle of Superman movies uh, ending this way. <laughs> What's your pitch a sequel? Oh, my pitch a sequel. Um, I, I guess I don't. I don't want Luthor as much as as awesome as as the Luthor in this film was. I don't want to have Luthor involved in my sequel for this. So my sequel, uh, for this, uh, since they do mention Gotham in this movie, uh, my sequel is going to be, uh, this Superman teaming up with Christopher Nolan's Batman, but not in the way you think. Superman's got a kid. He wants to teach that kid to use his powers responsibly and be a superhero. Batman has Robin for the purposes of this movie, mm. uh, which is yeah. another kid, and he wants that kid to learn how to fight crime. So essentially, it's about Batman and Superman being dads to these two kids, uh, and the kids eventually like going off on their own to to to, to fight to fight crime. Like the, essentially. Uh, Superman's kid and Robin are going to end up going to the same school. That's where they're going to meet. They're going to figure each other out, and they're going to become super buddies. And in the end, in the end, we'll have we'll have some we'll have something awesome. Well, you know what the hell? We'll have uh, the end of the movie will be Jim Carrey as the Joker in some sort of giant robot suit, and we'll see Superman, Batman, Robin, and Superboy team up to stop Joker in a giant robot suit. And, it'll, and, uh, Jim, and I, I feel like Jim Carrey could play a credible Joker. Oh, absolutely. And I guess if it, I guess if it needs a title, just uh, for lack of a better term, world's finest. Why not? Yeah, makes sense. Um, it's a bit surprising they haven't done a live action film with both Luthor and the Joker yet. Uh, you had, you know, that the crossover episode of the cartoon. Uh, from the 90s, and you had all sorts of, uh, I'm sure all those like Super Friends cartoons did Luther and the Joker a lot. But, yeah, it's, uh... Yeah, and I, and I, and I think, I think about that, and 
it, it is well actually that was the thing so when when uh the trailer for batman v superman colon dawn of justice uh movie film for theaters came out the whole time i was like oh eisenberg's gonna turn out to be the joker not lex luthor no i was wrong Hmm. But that's what he should have been playing. It's it's the same problem. It is the same problem we talked about when we covered the Tim Burton Batman films, is that no matter what villain you're playing, everyone wants to play the Joker, so every villain gets played like the Joker, and I feel like that's the same thing that we're seeing in that movie. Right. I mean, it's just uh, the original Jack Nicholson performance was so iconic that it's difficult to... And it's you know seems to be the most popular villain that it's always in the in the, the shadows even if they're not directly doing the character they're paying homage to it. Um, What's your pitch my, a sequel? My pitch is sequel. You've done so many of these. Um, I think I would do um, Superman. Is I wouldn't do it without Luthor. Uh, I would have something involving. Um, like the the Elseworld setting, I think. Ooh. I think you would, and use that as a way to do uh, Justice League and do it with the completely sort of you know everything that's on its head. The bad guys are good, the good guys are bad. Um, you would do that sort of a storyline and try to mix things up to see as a way to do a reboot instead of you know doing the the origin story once again. Um, I, I would I would go for something like that. Hmm. And would we have, like, the good Superman face off against the evil Superman, or would the whole thing be in an Elseworlds kind of world? I think the whole thing would be in Elseworlds, but at the end there would be a teaser where they'd cross over into the real world. Hmm. Um, That's a teaser for a sequel. Interesting. So I have a question for you. Yes, What's your shoe size? Ten. My, my. Also, what you watching? Yes. Um, no, actually, it's eight and a half. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I finally watched the one episode of Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. Oh, that nice. I had not seen yet. Because it's not available in the United States. I had to use, like, a, a VPN and to watch it on on youtube for some reason what uh episode was it it was episode four the apes of wrath oh apes of wrath is so good which is pretty good where it if you don't know what garth Marenghi's dark place is and i think i've talked about this on the show before it was on the bbc for just one season and it is one of those things where uh the idea is garth Marenghi is a character sort of like a stephen king and it's like what if he did a, a TV show in the 80s that was never broadcast, and now they're taking it out of the vault. And part of it's like a mockumentary with uh, the, the people talking about it in retrospect, but then you see the actual episode of the show itself. But they really do a great job of making it look cheap and terrible. And the writing is awful on purpose, but then you have Garth Marenghi, who's very pompous, saying, oh, no, 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 you know, this is what... Um, we, we're doing this for for a good reason, you know. Well, it's it's just so quotable, you know. There are many writers that use subtext. They're all cowards. I do not use subtext. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> one of those great, great things. The, the other thing too is uh, 
But yeah, I mean, th- but this episode, it's he talks about you know, men have beasts within them, and uh, this episode has to deal with animals. They don't want to give away anything, but let's just say Planet of the Apes. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's like, not this is not a subtle show, but yet I, I really like how it commits to the concept of looking cheap and feeling stupid, and and this the the ape makeup is just horrendous, and like the the thing they they drink to turn into apes is water colored green, like it looks like. Uh, they just put food coloring in water, which I'm sure is well, what they did. Well, that's like, the, it, that's it looks the whole like story. Mouth, it looks like ev- mouthwash. Everyone in the hospital is turning into an ape, except the main character, Dag, who's played by Garth Marenghi, who is played by uh, Matthew Holness, I think it is. And it's yeah. and, and it's just so convoluted. And like you come to find out the whole reason everyone's turned into an ape is because they've been drinking water cooler water that's tainted with, with urine from an ape man. <laughs> Yes, and the other one that does not turn into an ape is Richard Ayode is Dean Lerner, um, as the who, head of the hospital. As the head of the hospital, who is the uh, Garth Marenghi's book publisher, who admittedly can't act, and um, the, oh, but well, he, they make great. they make a huge deal about he only takes a tiny sip of the tainted water. Oh yeah, he does like the littlest sip, and he, oh no. Oh, yeah, but so I don't know if you ever caught this. So the the series is full of great meta jokes, and one of the meta jokes is that the Dean Lerner character is supposed to be the director of all the episodes. So whenever Dean Lerner is in front of the camera, all directing goes away. It's always static shots, and oh, nothing is edited. Yeah, I think I think the ISC like jump cuts a lot. What I thought was very funny is at the end of the episode, there's a lot of exposition that they clearly dub over, and so it cuts to, like, a shot of a plant for a minute, and yeah. then, like, it cuts to their shot of a lamp, and they put this, like, really uh, exposition-heavy explanation and as it goes to how really they fast. were able to cure everyone. Yeah, and, like, it's, at, it's played back, like, a, you know, almost double speed. It almost sounds like Chipmunk's talking. Um, I, but I think my favorite actor in this is Matt Berry as... as uh, Dr. Lucian Sanchez. Oh, yeah. So he's given the name of Sanchez. He, you know, has the hair. But when he talks, he sounds like Sean Connery. It's just (laughs) ridiculous. Dag, what are we going to do about these monkeys? Yeah, and, uh... But, yeah, no, Apes of Wrath was a very good episode. I think my favorite episode of the series is Skipper the Eye Child. I thought you'd say that. Although Scotch Mist is pretty good, too. Um... But yes, yeah, got it's... the music video in the middle of Skipper the Eye Child is amazing. Oh no, no, no! <laughs> it's the 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 f- frightful fog from the shores of Shagoth is the one with the music video. Yeah, it's. Uh... It was, you're a one track lover on a two lane highway, <laughs> and it has a rap in the middle. <laughs> it does. It, I wish it would have got another um, another season. Well, did you it ever did see not... the spinoff? Um, yeah, I, I, I've seen, I'm working my way through that, Man to Man with Dean Lerner, which is a, among other things, a parody of, um, Chat shows. you know, Playboy After Dark, oh, and, yeah. but yeah, I mean, they, uh, the, the one of that that I've seen is with, um, they talked to Glenn and Nimrod, who is supposed to be like the Leonard Nimoy type, uh, science fiction actor, who has this very, you know, strange voice, and... He's like, oh, don't refer to the field of science fiction. We just call it Phi. Like it's <laughs> very, um, very pompous. Have you seen it? Uh, not, not all of it, unfortunately. It's a series I need to to finish watching. 
It's <laughs> there's another episode where it talks about a a character actor. Uh, Randolph Kerr is is in films like Bitch Killer, <laughs> and he said he's in the movie Bitch Killer, but he never had worked with a woman before, and he felt that improved his performance. <laughs> but, I mean, the, the name of these. Of like the fake movies and, and stuff these people are in are, are just ridiculous. Like, pew, what a scorcher. <laughs> but also, like, when they show the clips from these fake movies or TV shows that these people are in, they commit to making it look like a, a show from that period. Down to the acting, down to the music. I mean, it's very, very accurate what they're doing. Well, even then, like, when Garth Marenghi is a guest and he's promoting a movie based on one of his books called, like, Night of the Wasps, and they cut to a clip, it looks like a sci-fi channel movie trying to ape, like, a movie like Independence Day. <laughs> right. And uh, and even the, down to Garth Marenghi's book covers look like, you know, the book covers of the, the 80s with the, the huge font and some sort of generic drawing on there that has little to do with the book itself. Yeah, it's... So it's I, don't, just... I don't know if you've ever been to the Garth Marenghi website, but they have this section with excerpts from his novels and, like, synopses. Oh, no, I haven't. And it's comments so from the author. It is it is hilarious. <laughs> my, my, fa- my favorite one was, like, there's, like, one of his first books, you know, and when I wrote this book, it was a metaphor, it was a metaphor for racism. <laughs> Until the 1980s, when I realized it was a metaphor for AIDS. <laughs> and it's just su- such great. There's like, so he has he has some horror novel about a truck that kills people, <laughs> but it's told from the perspective of people riding in the truck. I wonder if that, you know, that thing you mentioned about how it was a metaphor for this and it changed to AIDS, I wonder if that's a reference to The Stand, because... Originally, The Stand came out in the 70s, and then later when it came with the complete edition, they put, I think, references to AIDS in there to huh. make it more current. It could be, because like, whenever I watch Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, uh, I, do, I do find echoes of Stephen King, but I also find echoes of Brian Lumley, and to mm. a certain extent, Clive Barker. Yeah. Like, they clearly, they clearly know mass market horror paperbacks. Yes, it's just... <laughs> The way of writing, and then the uh, the narration just often like repeats the same thing like five times. <laughs> it, yeah, it, folks, uh, it's it's great. Watch it. Maybe we'll do a recap podcast one day. Yeah, watch it however you can. Um, so that's that's what I've been watching. What about you, Thrasher? Uh, I've been watching a, a lot of things, uh, but uh, the main thing I want to talk about, I I revisited the 1995 horror sci-fi film with Peter Weller, Screamers, based on the Philip K. Dick story, Second Variety. There's a lot of those, isn't there? There, there are a lot. There, there is, And there is a, a sequel that came out in 2009, Screamers, The Hunting. Yeah. So maybe we'll, maybe we'll cover this, but like, like re, re-watching it, it's fascinating. It, it is a film with the leg in two worlds. Like it, it, it really is right on the gap between old school practical effects and CGI taking over everything. So it has a fascinating mix of old school and new school special effects. Some some regrettable and some phenomenal. How is Peter Weller in the lead? Oh, he's fantastic, like he always is. But I mean, you know, for, for for those you know who don't know, it's about uh, there's this 
there's lots of exposition in the front loading the movie that gets repeated later on in the movie but that there's this planet that has this mineral that's a perfect fuel source uh, but it releases radiation that, that kills people so it, you really have to work hard to keep people working in the mines and then one day the mines stopped producing and there was a there was a war over who would control the mines and a weapon system called screamers got released and Peter Peter Wellers is sent there uh, to find out why the mines haven't reopened and you find out like it's it it gets it gets really dark because you find out that the screamers they're supposed to be these burrowing robots that self-replicate and were supposed to protect the mines but now they're pretty much killing everybody but beyond that you find out that the screamers some of them have been upgraded and disguised themselves as human beings and so it of course gets into the classic what what is a human that you get in mo- in a lot of Philip K Dick stories and the screamers themselves, the design is really creepy. It's like this skeletal cat bird made of metal that is animated, stop motion animated, which only makes it creepier. Hmm. Like the the movie, the movie has its flaws, but it's very entertaining and very very fun. And even when you can see the twists coming a mile away, the movie does its best to make the payoffs matter. And the probably the least horrendous CGI spaceship of the time. Oh, that's something. Yeah, 95 would have been pretty early for a CG spaceship. Um, yeah, you know, I mentioned there's a lot of Screamers, and I was mistaken. I guess there's only two. I was thinking of Scanners. Oh, Scanners, I think there's yeah. five different Scanners movies. Um, and Scanner Cop. Oh, yeah, including Scanner Cop. Scanners 3 is quite silly. But you, you can tell that it's a Dan O'Bannon movie. Cool. Um... Yeah, I've read the short story. It's just been a while. Second Variety is the short story. It's based off by Philip K. Dick. Yeah. Well, great. Um, well, sounds good. So uh, next week we're going to be talking about... Uh, we're going to do sort of a, a filler. <laughs> a long time ago in the original uh, sequel cast show, we did Rocky, but uh, since then they've come out with a, another one called Creed. And so we're going to be talking about Creed next week, and then after that we will look at the Ace Ventura trilogy. It is a trilogy, folks. Trust us. But you'll see when it happens. Yep. So, for Sequel Cast 2, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. <laughs> Follow me on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T. Follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. Follow the show at Sequel Cast 2. Uh, give us a review on iTunes and wherever you can. Tell your friends about us, uh, family, your dogs, your pet snails. Also, um, our theme song is written and performed by Mark with a C. And you know what I have to say? Yes. Wrong!